Welcome to Chine Days, The Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorris. With us is Amy Waters Yersinski, author of An American in the Basement, The Betrayal of Captain Scott Spiker and the Cover-Up of His Death, the incredible true story of denial, deceit, and deception that ultimately cost Navy pilot Spiker his life. Amy is a former naval intelligence officer, a veteran investigator, and a best-selling and award-winning author of narrative nonfiction with over 30 years in publishing. Chris and Amy, it's great to be with you both. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you, Amy, for coming on. And thank you for contacting me and allowing me to uh, publish this amazing book. I mean, I just was really honored to publish this because the lies that are told to the American public for whatever reason are just quite amazing. And, you know, when you brought this book to me, I just, you know, it, it took me a long time to, to wrap my head around all the different parts of it. Just that this guy got, you know, knocked down out of the sky and we kind of knew it. And because some admiral didn't want to cop to some problem, this guy just, you know, Mr. Spiker lived a, a terror. I mean, can, can you imagine what Scott felt? Yeah, it's, uh, it's what they all feel when they're left behind like that. And it started, you know, we have, as I talk about in the book, and I think that's part of what uh, was wonderful about the process that we went through trying to put it together, is that you allowed that backstory to be told as to how we get a spiker in that situation. We got him in that situation because we had been allowing as a country for this to happen for decades. Can you can you explain that? It started in uh, the end of World War One, and it continued on in the 20th century. It, it continued on. It raged on in the interim, in the 30s, when we were dealing with the new Bolshevik regime in Russia, and they would take people. They were anxious for um, their um, industries to be stood up, and they they didn't know how to do that. So they were stealing people from the West. They were kidnapping. They kidnapped um, many of what they called the polar bears from. Uh, the American Expeditionary Force, those were the guys who came from your industrial states, your car manufacturing states, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin. They wanted them because they knew how to, how to manufacture rubber, how to build cars, how to build other elements of transportation. And they kidnapped them and took who, them into- Who are they? Who are they? The Russian, the Russian Bolsheviks. They were the first to really perfect this slaveholder mentality, this ability to take someone and make them work for you. And if they didn't comply, they ended up in a gulag somewhere never to be seen again. It's been very rare uh, when we've had anyone escape that and get, and they have had cases and they have written books about them, but those books were written in the forties and fifties and sixties and people have forgotten largely uh, the measure of those stories. Now in World War II, uh, by that time, the Russians had were on a, a much larger scale in training our POWs from uh, Germany's um, East European uh, POW camps. If they got to the prison camps first, they entrained the POWs back to Russia, to the gulags. And we're still missing 68 to 70,000 people from World War II that they cannot account for that way how, how come you know this isn't talked about what i mean what's the the reasoning for not really telling the american people about this 
we complain about you know the, me the media corporate media today we complain about the things they don't talk about but it, in truth the government way back when in that time frame was very good about telling the, the media what it could cover and what it couldn't and what it wanted to talk about and what it didn't certainly it started under fdr he didn't want he didn't want anybody to know that we had these uh problems with, with russia who was becoming our uh ally out of convenience for defeating the germans and the japanese the problem is that the the russians saw it as opportunity and they took it. They saw it as a sign of weakness that we wouldn't talk about it and then we wouldn't try to get our people back. And I actually talked to uh, George Patton's uh, niece at a meeting I had done a few years back and she was uh, working on, she working from his papers and things and the family pieces that elements of that. And, and she discovered that uh, he was in the process of trying to get the um, Eisenhower's uh, command in Europe to, to look at what the Russians were doing with those POW camps and, and taking his people. Some of his people got captured in that, in the tank corps and um, in the armor uh, and infantry, the escorting infantry. And he, he wanted that accountability, but they wouldn't do it. He was arguing with them at that time over that and he was killed and, you know, in that Jeep accident. You know, it, it's, it's basically a very interesting uh, process uh, you see again repeating itself as we get into Korea what happens in Korea by that time the, the Korean regime had had learned that that same prisoner holding mentality as 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 had the red Chinese as the Russians they learned it from the Russians and so by the time you get to Korea we literally had what was supposed to be a POW exchange occur on a on a line of demarcation they had set up with uh, gates and things, and there was supposed to be an exchange. We would literally watch them walk our people right up to that line and then turn around and pull them back. And then we never saw those people again, you know? And then during Vietnam, same thing occurs, but you know, the interesting part, I just had this conversation the other day with um, correspondence back and forth with Chuck Coleman, whose brother was a SPAD pilot in Vietnam. And he was uh, circling a target over his Sanway. And he ended up, um, not coming up from a, from one of his uh, his looksies, and, and uh, he was missing about 20 miles from San Jose, which is where they kept American POWs. And um, he's never been heard from again, but was last known alive. Now, the interesting part about this is the pilot that I'm working on now from Vietnam was an electronics warfare type officer. The Russians were very interested, as were the Chinese, in our electronics warfare and uh, more sophisticated knowledge of aircraft and tactics than they were the pilots. So they would imprison the pilots, but they would, they would entrain the uh, electronics warfare folks back to Russia. And the brother of the person I'm actually working on a book about right now, he was uh, Navy Lieutenant Commander James Kelly Patterson. And he was, uh, his brother tracked his last known whereabouts to Kazakhstan. Again, like, a, you know, when I when I first read your book and, you know, reading about all these people that get captured and, and the Russians use and other people use just, you know, how much I was unaware of it. It just completely blew my mind. And then, it, you know, very shocking. I, yeah. You know? And I, I think about, you know, you know, my dad, and you know, he, he tells me this stuff. He says the Vietnam War is about drugs. There's these secret societies behind mm -hmm. it. And, and, and then he says in communism, it's all a sham. These same secret societies are behind it all. And then when I look at Anthony Sutton, he was working uh, 
at the Hudson Institute at Stanford. And, you know, he was putting out this book, The Western Technology Influence on the Soviets. And he gets to uh, the third uh, volume of it. And the people at, at the Hoover Institute say, well, Tony, you know, we don't want that to come out right now. And, and Tony didn't understand. He said, what do you mean you don't want it to come out now? And because one thing it showed is that the Vietnam War was being fought with weapons that were coming from Russia that were coming from factories that Americans had built and there had been American engineers there. Right. So the, the war couldn't have happened. I mean, so where are the people that are, are, are directing this and, and what's their reasoning? And Well, you know, and, and, and it turns out that one of the things with Spiker that's a complication that um, probably will remain classified for a very long time is that the night that he was shot down, he was flying a mission that only two people were privy to it and it would have been loaded onto the computer electronics in his plane uh they used to have the bricks the old bricks you know we see and the crew chief would carry it out put it in the airplane and it would the pilot would find out what his mission was supposed to be once he got into the airplane and he got launched you know he'd call it all up on his computer and at that point you know i guess they figured no harm nobody can do anything about that then well the other pilot involved who i had interviewed for that book he was the other pilot that had that mission loaded in his aircraft that night and it was one of those ones where they were supposed to go north of the, of the uh it's kind of like going north of the 30th parallel you know they were supposed to go across this line of demarcation over baghdad and it was supposed to be a big hit you know they were supposed to to drop their ordnance there and he never got that far you know but the uh, agency in at that point in time they wanted that brick out of that airplane they did not want anybody to see what that mission was supposed to be because they assumed he knew more than he did. His airplane was breaking down on him. It, it was he didn't have a lot of things working that he should have. So it 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 ended up being something where he had less knowledge than they assumed he did, and didn't take the time to actually wait for that information to come back and know that they had a they knew they had a pilot on the ground from the beginning and he was evading. They knew that, and the same thing went with uh, James Kelly Patterson. He, he had a pilot on the ground evading. Red McDaniel was his pilot, and uh, Red is the uh, chairman of the American Defense Institute, and and they today are, that's why they are so keyed in on this particular story and, and about advo advocacy in this area, because you never forget the person you lose like that. You know, they're your friends, they're your comrade in arms, they're, you know, one of the things Chuck Coleman said to me about his brother when he went down the spat, he said, he said, I often wonder why people like you, he said, Refer, you know, because he read, he just read the American Abasement. Did I see so many similarities with my brother in this story? I see how strong an argument you make for them when they go down like that, and you that they should be looked for, they should be found, they should be accounted for, and the whole deal. He says, but I often wonder why someone like you, who's not a family member of a lost one, engages in this misery, this this miserable research you have to do to get to the answers. And I said, well. It's because I believed in the uniform that I put on and I, you know, raised my right hand and I said that that promise that that oath to me still matters, you know, and it still matters that that we account for the ones we missed. I don't care how many decades go by, you still have to have accountability. And one of the things that I've learned is that 
we have even we have a way to do it even if we get uh these seated sites back you know like we did with spiker where you get them from pilots or air crews in vietnam where they put the they try to estimate where they think the airplane went down and so because they know we've got a team coming in you know to look for remains and if they would just test some of these remains they'd find that they have they have uh remnants of different diet diets they ate you know in their bone they then we've had them track back already to east europe mines in East Europe where only a certain metal will glow, you know, glow hot on the bone. It'll actually glow. And there's a mine in East Germany where they used to send them where that, that part particulates are still on the bone. And if you light them up, it looks like, um, it looks like uranium lit up. So how, how come, how come this story isn't really told? Well, it's politics. It's, uh, it was like, you know, I talked to the, uh, lead investigator for the uh, uh, McCain-Carey show and that POWMIA um, uh, committee that took place in 92 to 94 time frame. And, and Bob and I have talked about it a couple of times um, over the years. And But just recently, I just talked to him not even a, a week and a half ago. And um, he, uh, he said, you know, you have people who weren't afraid to talk about it, who wanted to talk about it. Reagan did a lot of talking about it. Reagan wanted them back. He wanted back the Viet the ones he found out about in Vietnam, he wanted them back. And he was trying to arrange for General Lacey, who was um, Air Force at that point in time, to uh, have these meetings. And he did have meetings near Sanway. And he had them over um, several very well-known names who were missing at that time. And, um, and the FBI was secretly recording the Oval Office. And uh, they got all that, all those discussions on tape. And Bob said they were part of his notes for the committee that got buried. And uh, when they closed up shop, and he said, "You need to get the, you need to get those transcripts. They still have those." And he said they were recording. And Reagan was having these meetings in the Oval Office with Lacey and some of his other advisors and his chief of staff. And they were, and they were talking about this secret exchange program they were planning to do, trying to buy them back. There was a black budget for that. In in the book American in the Basement, you talk about people that were in Vietnam that actually got repatriated. Yes. And died in our um, custody. Custody. Yes. And their 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 relatives don't even know and stuff. Yeah, a couple can, of them had you, relatives. Can you, explain, can you talk about well, that? They um and it, this big secret they have here. Uh, I don't know what the omission they thought was going to happen or how the public would react to the uh, to the revelation that this was going on or that they had been left behind, you know, when, when they settled things in 73 and sent home a few people, but not everybody. I don't know whether they thought the public was going to go into a tailspin over, over one that we had been in Laos and Cambodia and other places. And, you know, I think most people who were around then kind of know we were, you know, it wasn't so much a secret, you know, they thought it, they must've thought it was, I don't know, they, that we lost people there and that we lost most of them there that are not accounted for today is really very interesting. You know, the other thing that I, that I think that they just uh, figured that, okay, so Kissinger had, had cut it off at, okay, we're bringing these people home. So everybody else has been declared, you know, we're to declare them dead. So they've declared them dead, but they're not really dead. And then you have to explain that. And I don't know that they were ready to figure that one out for, because it opened, it opened up the Pandora's box, not only to what was then more recent in terms of Korea and, and uh, World War II, but you have, you have uh, at that point in time, they were leaving that door, um, 
trying to get him. It was Reagan doing the backdoor stuff. I mean, he was he was the one doing that. He succeeded in a few. I do know the family members who were scared to death of of interfering with this because they didn't want their loved one to be killed, you know, or to die as a result of them making anything of it. One of them was um, an Air Force colonel's wife. One of only there are only about six of um, the O six level, you know, colonels, captains of the Navy, that kind of thing, who got lost and. Um, she lived down south around the Atlanta area, as I recall, and I met her at that conference we were at back in 2013 in D.C., and she was a very quiet, well-reserved lady, and she was probably approaching in her 80s then, and she was uh, she quietly told me with her daughter sitting there that her husband was one of the ones that General Lacey had approached her and told her that her husband could be coming home. Uh, they were actually, Reagan was going to let some of these folks be known. That couldn't happen, apparently. That was not going to be ha- happening. So the whole thing got shut down and the and the budget got pulled. Well, and Lacey got a lesson from the CIA about not talking because he got hauled off to Canada and beaten up a little bit and lost a couple of teeth, actually, and who, brought back, who, back home who, again. Who, who's calling the shots here? Who, who, who's calling the shots? I think I think the intel services have been doing that. I think it's been I think it's been the agency. I think it's been perhaps some of our foreign partners that way. When I was finishing up the uh, American in the Basement, you know, I got the phone call from a friend of mine saying, you know, the intel services are circling the wagons once again on this because they realized that I was going to be doing the book. You know, mm-hmm. most people don't get a bite at a story like this twice. You know, and and uh, they didn't think so because they kept slow walking all the information I asked for, and it would take years for it to come in, and they had no idea I was going to do another book and use it more effectively because I had more of it at that point and had amassed so many more uh, players in that uh, than they thought. But I mean, it's always the Intel services. I mean, you, you, you look at, you look at uh, what happened with the, um, the, the Falcon Hunter. The Falcon Hunter is well-known, you know, uh, top U.S. asset in the Middle East, has been for decades. And, you know, it, you you look you're looking at somebody like that telling them point blank why did you leave him there you know the honorable thing would have been to get your person back you could debrief him about what he's not supposed to talk about but you should have gotten him back you know 45 minutes they could have had him that night i mean even the uh the the british sas said that to me they said why would you why would you leave him there they're still trying to get some of their people back. That's really the only reason why we tapped in again and were able to actually listen in on what was going on with Spiker with the Iraqis. You know, they, we had we had surveillance on on that whole thing. We had control. Some things, you know, that you can't talk about in, in these in these books. And I, I have this thing about not dropping myself into the storylines, but some of the stuff going on behind the scenes with this was really quite extraordinary. When I was doing the first book I did on the case. I had the good guys on one end of the street trying to watch out for the bad guys who were looking at me. And I come out of my house and they were in cars on either end of my, either end of the street. And I didn't know that my reserve commission had been re-upped again uh, so that they could protect me. You know, the Navy actually really wanted their person back. I mean, I I do not fault the Navy for this. Navy wanted, the Navy actually wanted its person and they wanted their other person too, the uh, the F-18 pilot off the Roosevelt. They wanted him back too. I talk about him in the book, you know, at some length. Uh, he was, uh, par- he parachuted out. He was talking on his comms, on his survival radio, all the way down to boots on the ground in Western Iran. And we lost him. 
I'm sorry, but this just drives me nuts. And uh, it should drive everybody nuts, you know, and it should make people angry. But they do a good job of suppression when it comes to the media on, the, on these kind of stories. I think until you reach a critical mass and once you start really, you know, I do a lot of talks about this kind of thing. And I've, I've had more people lately actually read an American in the basement and they're getting it now, you know, and they're starting to get it. It's, re it's reaching that point where people are starting to get it. Sometimes people a little slow, you know, <laughs> right. learning well, curve. We, we see the, the black missing in action flag, you know, on yeah. many, many polls. And so we, we think that, you know, uh, there's people that are, you know, taking that must care be doing something. Yeah, they're, they're they're doing something. And, you know, they see, yeah, they see the flag. They see they have this special day set aside, but there really isn't anybody doing anything about it. And if you talk to anybody who's a family member of someone who's missing, they'll tell you that every year, it seems they get a different case officer working that case. And every year you have to bring the person up on 30 years or 40 years of information and they don't care. It's a stepping stone job for them in the government service to get, or a contractor who's hired by the government to do it. And it's, it's just a, it's not a serious, they're not taking it seriously. They don't understand how miserable it is to have this, how horrible you feel and I have to put myself in the middle of this you know so that I can write effectively but I have to understand that what they feel it's, it's ironic to me that when the CIA wanted to look for him with the task force and uh the you know 2003 2006 7 8 time frame that they came to me and brought me up to Langley and went to the basement every agency you could think of was in there the uh, the deltas they had they were going to be looking for him they're all there and the reason they could they wanted to talk to me was largely because they knew that no one knew him no one knew Spiker's mind and heart as strongly as I did because I understood how he was trained my job was going back many years before that was to understand how these things work when you get somebody on the ground like that and how to find them and what would they do you know how would they react to something what kind of clues would they leave you and Spiker left clues everywhere. And it's a funny thing, you know, how you learn things, you know, if, if, you, if you know, SEAL team commanders are not supposed to speak to anyone uh, about these things that they, they are involved in overseas. And yeah, and you respect, I respect that. And, and they respect what I do, but by the same token, they sometimes reach a maxing out point where they just can't hold it in anymore. That's how I knew that they had kicked in 67 doors and everywhere they kicked in a door, they found some medical paraphernalia or some sign that he'd been there. They were chasing, chasing him and they chased him all over the country. You know, for all the good guys trying to tell you where he was, there were lots of bad ones telling you, telling them they were, he was, you know, they were coming and then they were coming in hot. And so they couldn't get him in time. And, you know, that way. And uh, it's sad. I mean, I've seen a list of all the physicians who treated him especially in Iraq by name how, how do you how do you sleep at night Amy when I'm working on a, on a on a project like this it's very hard because I all I can all I can think of is the different things I need to do next so trying to what questions do I want to ask you know who do I how do I get to I'm still thinking about Bob Taylor's notes. I've got to get to his notes and I've got to get those coughed up because they they're really kind of important but, you know, there's, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. There's still other people missing that could, could still be alive today. And, you know, we have a, a Spirit 03 from the Gulf War 
the F-18, other F-18 pilot, you know, Robert J. Dwyer, B.J. Dwyer. You got um, a couple other people on the ground that got snatched over there that never got accounted for. I still get called back to do some, you know, some debriefing of people when I, they think that I'm in the position to be able to do that. And so they protect me pretty well, but I, I it's really hard to talk to people that, you know, have got some of your own people. Right. It's very hard. So, so, I mean, you, you have support from, from admirals and stuff to, to do what you have to do, but then, you know, somebody squashes, I mean, I, I, I just don't understand. They, they the get called, you know, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty bad because, you know, one of the ones who was trying to help out when I was doing that uh, Spiker uh, project, uh, you know, I was often in the Pentagon over that. And, and um, but the first question he would always ask me is, what do you know about BJ? Because BJ was his responsibility on board the Roosevelt. He was the uh, CAG at that time. And, and you had BJ uh, and it also in an airplane in which his inertial navigation system was down and it was a nighttime mission. He should have taken the plane back to the deck. He didn't do it. He wanted to go get those combat hours in. So he pressed on and he flew the mission, but he gave the lead over to uh, another pilot who was a friend of his. But he goes down. He, the minute he came off the deck of the Roosevelt, he swung out over Ron in the first place. So the E2C Hawkeyes were guiding him back onto his track. Uh, verbally and then but at the same time the Iranians had already been alerted and were sending up F-5s to come after him you know so you've got this problem already he knew he had the problem but he, he presses a bad situation Spiker pressed a bad situation so it, it it becomes this thing where you get you get the pilot off the Roosevelt he goes missing and here's how it happens in a very quick encapsulation of this event this uh at that point CAG on board the Roosevelt is uh he's missing a pilot you know he, bj makes it feet wet back over the over the water coming back to the carrier but he loses loses situational awareness about where he is they don't know he might have taken some fragmentation you know over over the target so i remember they were going after rail yards and um he could have taken some hits nobody knows he told uh the lead pilot to keep going and he catch up he didn't but the odds are no one ever had him on red crown like they said he had, which was the, uh, they had, they had ships out there with uh, the ability to see who was coming, but there's so many planes, you know, there was just so many planes all over and nobody ever had him. So the next time they heard from him secretly was over uh, Western Iran going down in his parachute. That was all kept secret, except that the CAG must have known this. He, he sent an, uh, an S3 to go look for him over water and get they get over land they're about 400 feet off the deck and start getting shot at really badly they could have lost four more aviators over this because he sent them knowingly in the wrong direction because he'd been told to to hide where he'd really been gone gone down so everybody's looking for bj dwyer over water and uh islands and the in the gulf upper gulf and, and he didn't go down there he went down far to the other side of the situation there and um and so the Iranians got a pilot and nobody was willing to challenge that. And when they came back and said they couldn't find him, the CAG was in tears. And I think that to this day, he still gets very, very emotional about that. You know, uh, we did a, another book, uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice by John Herlosky. And we did yep. a, uh, a podcast of him the other day and he, he brought your name up because yes. you guys- and our friends, yep. And I mean, it was amazing when I did his book because his book had been, you know, it was it was already scheduled to come out through some big company, and, and then all of a sudden it got it got 
you know, stopped. And I'm wondering if it had something to do with uh, the situation with, with Spiker. You contacted the uh, remote viewing people to try and find information? No, um, the way that, that had had worked way, way back some time ago, there was a, well, there was a CIA program that was, they were remote viewers, as you recall. Mm -hmm. And that program has not ever really gone away. They cast it off into a couple of the primary people involved in it went to work for uh, SAIC and they're out West. And so they, they had trained some pods of folks. I think they had trained Herlowski and uh, maybe a couple other people that he, he knows out that way. Anyway, so he got in touch with me the first time. I, he had read the Spiker book. He really liked it. And so he contacted me. The interesting part is that I have, I have worked with the best person I have ever worked with uh, for law enforcement reasons and for some overseas work was uh, Noreen Rennier. Uh, she's a true, as I used to call them, the psychic warrior type. She's your real true deal there. And the best person, best discipline I've ever had. And, and, and my mentor in POWMIA was, who was looking for people when I was, before I was born, basically, he's, he's, uh, he's also out your way. Um, he's the one who told me that they, when they're certified by law enforcement to work with, you know, Bureau and other, other agencies, then you know that they're paying attention to their skill sets that are brought to the table. One of the things that they recruited me to intelligence for was because I was an intuitive and I knew things. Well-educated, but I knew things. You know, as, as I always just say, I just say my instincts are just very good, <laughs> you know, about this or that. But um, I'm a good ma uh, program manager in that area because I manage and let her inform me, better inform me. She's worked a lot of big criminal cases where the person's been missing. It's a murder, murder case. Right. There, there's two Spiker books, right? Your first one, what's its name? Uh, no One Left Behind. And it was, uh, it was done with uh, Penguin Putnam, but it really was done before some of, the, some of the sources were able to come out and talk about it. If you look at the timeline of that, you're talking about another decade later or so when you've got uh, people whose ability to talk, you know, they've retired from the military or they're, or they were involved, but they got out, um, or they're, they have clearance issues before. And now they can talk about some things they could talk about before they feel more comfortable about that. That matters because right. then they can really start to inform you and tell you what to look for. Yes. The American in the basement is a bit more of a deeper dive. Than it's a much deeper one. dive. There are still people today who won't talk about what they, they know in this case, which is fascinating to me because they have retirements they could lose over that. So is the obfuscation of the MIAs, is that official policy? Is that an official policy of the United States military? I think that in the branches, it varies. Like the next said, the Navy really wanted their person back. I've seen the Marines want their person back. I've seen various service branches wanting, wanting accountability. But honestly, it's, it comes down to more of a political uh, statement in terms of the fact that they don't want to get this. This is a messy issue for them. It crosses all kinds of, in the politician's head, I'm sure, these geopolitical issues or countries or whatever, when it really doesn't matter, those things shouldn't matter at all. I mean, and, and to the other countries that we're letting, we're leaving our people behind in, they can't believe we're doing that. They would fight for their person back. As bad as we may perceive the Russians to be, or the Chinese or the North Koreans or whoever they are, you know, on the enemies list, especially in the Middle East, 
they would be wanting their person back because they went through this whole, you, you dissect what happened between the Iran and Iraq war that happened for eight years over there. One of the things that we kept going back and forth was this recurring prisoner swap. They wanted their, they wanted their folks back. They just couldn't believe them. We didn't ask for people. We weren't even asking for them by name and we never did. It's like a walking into a room and hoping that some of your people have been brought to the room for to be given back to you you know they didn't even know to ask by name that's yeah. how how bad it was you know even during world war ii we didn't and that's that's unconscionable yeah yeah again like i said i i had a hard time getting my head around it still do i mean keeping the american people in the dark for i don't know why uh bruce do you have a, a question for for amy yes i do thanks uh, <laughs> this is more evidence for those persuaded the American military is inflated or unnecessary by magnitudes of order compared to the threats that there are on the planet. Could you speak to that or should I clarify that a little more? I think I get where you're going with that. And I, I think that uh, it's really, it, it, yes, to some degree, yes. And I think right now what I'm seeing is that uh, there seems to be no one driving the ship, so to speak. You know, they're, they're just getting bigger and bigger and there's more money involved than ever in terms of their hardware and whatever they get. I, I think recruitment is down. They may be fighting these wars with a little few more robots than we think they are because they're not getting the recruitment numbers they, they were supposed to be in the past. It's not as an attractive option as it used to be for young people. Yeah, the, but and also the betrayal, because I think as, as a layperson, yes. maybe Hollywood taught me, we'll leave no stone unturned to right. get who we left behind. A couple of quick, have you seen anything to indicate that George Patton was assassinated in that Jeep accident? His niece thought he was. She was she was trying to prove that. I spoke to her for we were at George Mason University at a at a um, a literary conference, and she was one of the attendees in my session, and she held back and talked to me afterwards for quite a while. She was trying to prove that point because she said that it would it would seem that there was every indication that that was true because he hadn't he wasn't in bad health or anything. He was very robust, you know. He was George Patton, you know. He's and she said there was really no no indication that he would have had a cerebral hemorrhage, hemorrhage on his own without an accident or some of the kind of craziness that happened, you know, there. He was really not well received by the leadership at that time. I, you know, I often say what we've had happen today, it really started also during World War II. You got Eisenhower on the top of this rung over there, and you have his British counterparts, his Russian counterparts, and so forth. And they were all basically becoming politicians in uniform at that time and we saw this gradual slide into to where they're almost 100 percent of politicians in uniform today you've got people playing with people's lives in a way that really has no bearing on how you know they should be protecting their person getting them back that kind of thing you're seeing an ebbing away of that those principles and those those promises that are made i really wanted to call I did it and trying to, to account for him, you know, you want to say that the promise was kept for him, but the promise wasn't kept for Spiker because he could have been brought back alive. It would have been to me an incredible story. It would be an incredible story. If you brought anyone home from any circumstance that way to me, it would be this incredible story, but they have really sort of uh, lost their way 
in terms of understanding that humanity and that part of who we need to be. We're fighting for humanity, supposedly. We're supposed to be fighting for the betterment of each other, not for these overarching, whatever they want to call resets and all these other things that they're trying to do now to people. God knows, you know, but they've lost the sense of who we are and, and what our job is when we're overseas, you know, and I worked humanitarian efforts with the military and did some really wonderful things, but then there was always this ugliness that came over the, the whole thing, you know, Katrina and, and Rita, the hurricane issues, and you get this ugliness that happens in the post, that all the, all the bad things the politicians did or the people in the guard did at the time, you know, and you, you look at all the things that could have been done better. It's that kind of thing. We just, we're losing, we're losing touch with who we are as people and human beings. I mean, in terms of being able to fight for one another and for the, what's really uh, principled. I don't, I mean, we can always buy hardware. You can always buy, you can always build a ship. You can always go build a tank somewhere, but you can't, what you can't build back is that principle and that humanity. Yeah. You know, Wow. And if, you, if they had that, they wouldn't have done that to Spiker. I mean, they wouldn't have done it to anybody. They would have gone and gotten them. And I, I, Chris has heard me talk about this. I think he'll remember the 2013 time frame we were there, and he remembers the room. I mean, there were there were there were people in the room that day. He met them, talked to him at length. You'll remember his uh, Spiker's friend came. Remember that his two friends who came, and uh, one flew with him, had flown with him in that squadron during the war. And, and what the public doesn't know is, and they, and, you know, how are they going to ever find out? Many of the guys that Spiker was flying with in that squadron, they left the Navy as soon as they could get out after the war because it was just, it left, it scared them. It scared them what happened to him. It scared them that there was no accountability. And only a couple of them stayed in and, 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 and did well. One of them became an admiral who traded his humanity and his ability to talk about what really happened and be honest about it for his stars. You know, that that really was distasteful. Some of these things are just unforgivable, you know, and but you, you see that happening. It's just really very sad. Well, it's, it's a day after Easter, I tell you. And, uh, you know, it, this is this is very sobering, you know, what 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 you bring to the table. And it's very, uh, you know, I find it very sad that, you know, you had to come to me to, to, to get this book printed. And it's also very sad that, you know, it, it, I mean, people knew about this book, people in, 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 you know, they still didn't act on it, you know, and, and didn't do anything to get it into the, uh, awareness of the american people it's well and, and and one of the things that that i did in, in the book with you the, you know the uh, an american in the basement is that um you know when i did the first book you know i've told you the story and i, I think i recounted some of that when i was in dc that day uh with the conference that originally uh senator roberts and some others you know on that committee and his intelligence person uh, Pete Dorn, none of them wanted me to talk about the other cases the Senate was researching at the time because they were trying to get some to ground on a few things. They wanted to know if the intelligence services, for one, were telling them the truth at all. And, you know, they consider my first book a, like a, a, a classified document unto itself because it pulled together so many things into one spot. And you can only imagine that American in the Basement is even more so because it has 
more information in one in one place and 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 really goes through it but the interesting part about this is they were trying to get at on their committees and at the level of the senate select committee on intelligence they were trying to get at these cases because they had been brought to their attention they knew about the spirit of three they knew about the 14-man crew on that uh, ac-130 um gunship they knew about bj dwyer they knew about spiker they knew about other things but they had there's some very heavy hitters this you'd have to equate the heavy hitter crowd to say the watergate crowd you know you've got a bunch of people at a at a at a in a, in a clutch up there you know that they were very high up in the washington uh, establishment who did not want anything turning up from vietnam not, certainly not the gulf because if you looked at the gulf and you admitted you had people missing in the gulf then you got to go back and admit you had people missing from vietnam which for them was too close and Kerry and McCain were sitting on this stuff like you would just not believe. You know, unfortunately, Senator Bob Smith, who was a very nice man, by the way, very nice man, but he tended to listen to what the last person told him. You know, he's every time you talk to him, he was changing his mind about what he was going to do with it. And he had the ability to get further with these cases of missing uh, personnel. But he but he let that last guy who might have been McCain at the time or Kerry convince him otherwise. Oh, we're not doing that. Because if we do that, then we have to do this, you know. The other problem you have is people who were kind of wild-eyed about it. You know, you had Billy Hennon, who was a congressman uh, from North Carolina, and he had all the best intentions, but he went about it wrong. This is an iterative process where you have to go through it very carefully. With When you're bringing the public along on this story, you have to go, you have to go step by step, and you have to prove your case. They'd have a hard time getting it you know, if you just jumped in at one point or another, another point without giving them the backstory or the, where they are in the middle or you know that kind of thing but hendon always said no we we proved it we have this we have that you do and you don't until you till you bring them through that through that looking glass right. and and i think we did that with an american in the basement now i'm doing the same thing with the james kelly patterson case because his brother he brought must have weighed 60 pounds the box of all the records that he had but there is a whole consortium of people who want to see this case come to light because of the fact that it, it really does stand out. I've talked to a few people that, I, that worked on things with the um, Spiker Project, and they're very much aware of what it means. What, what brings to mind to me is, is the, uh, uh, you know, the story of uh, whether you build your house on, on rock or you build it on sand. Right. And, uh, we're building a heck of a of a of a country on sand here. I mean, we're, we can't tell people the truth about what happened uh, to the people that we put in harm's way. Uh, we don't right. tell the truth about the JFK assassination. Nope. And, you know, to think that we're going to get anywhere without telling those truths is just wrong. It is. It, You're never going to get past it. The country fundamentally changed with a Kennedy assassination. And in many ways, it, from that day forward was never ever going to be the same. Right. Um, and you know, it's constantly looking over your shoulder at, at all the, uh, the lay of everything and what it, what it would have been and what it could have been and, uh, and why we never resolved it properly and, and let all this, you know, I, I, I think you said it best one time you define what a conspiracy theory was and it's only a conspiracy until someone proves it to be true. A lot of these things are, are not that hard to prove to be true. Um, you have any last last words you want to 
tell folks? Well, I, I think that um, as we continue to do projects and talk about things, I guess you've had some queries about whether or not anybody had any more of my books <laughs> at your disposal. I'm working on that. Um, okay. Yes, I had. I do have a couple projects um, that are that are good ones for you, and I would only want you to do them. And I, and I say that I don't ever consider it to be, uh, you know, picking you to do the American Abasement was the best decision ever. I mean, I I think that it it was a great collaboration, and it's still a great it will still be a great collaboration going forward. So it's not really that to me was as it should have been. It, it was the ability to tell a story in full. And I think people need to read that kind of thing and they will going forward. I think people are looking for now some of these answers to things that are, have been gaping holes in our, in our media narrative, you know, and, and in our politics of this country. We just haven't been very honest with the public. And I think that we need to be, and they need, the public needs to look for these answers. Amen. Amy, again, thank you so much. Uh, this has been just a, a wonderful uh, discussion. Well, sobering, I should say. So again, thank you and onwards. Yes.